Two Tribes is a two-part documentary series for RTE looking at the history of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and their roots in the Irish Civil War and how an intense rivalry gave way eventually to a coalition government. Now we bring you extended interviews with participants in the series. Mary Harney became a Fianna Fáil senator at 22. She later left the party to co-found the Progressive Democrats, becoming a senior minister in Tánaiste. Look, we're talking about civil war politics. That's our theme. When you hear that phrase, does it? What kind of resonance does it have for you? It means you're either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. Um, and I remember it was brought home to me very clearly during the by-elections of Donegal when I was there as a young politician, and you'd have a little area you'd be in charge of, and the local members would say, "We won't go to that house. They're definitely Fine Gael, or we won't go to that house. They're." It, not Fianna Fáil, I'm not sure, I think they're Fianna Gael, but there's no point going there. And Bobby Malloy used to tell me in, uh, in his constituency, particularly in the Iron Islands, he knew exactly which families were Fianna Fáil and which families were Fianna Gael. It was quite incredible. That, to me, in a real way, defined the civil war. You were one or the other. There was no such thing as ever moving from one to the other, and that's why what happened subsequently is really interesting. And the difference, OK, the tradition was there. People didn't change sides. But what about the, the makeup or the policies and what, what distinguishes them? Northern Ireland, essentially. Um, I think there's no doubt uh, Fianna Fáil was much more pro-nationalist and much more sympathetic to the national position and obviously keener on, on a united Ireland. And even in recent years, until we all formed a sort of a consensus in Northern Ireland around 1997, the Good Friday Agreement, Northern Ireland longer defines the difference between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, but that's how I would have seen it, certainly growing up. Uh, there were perceptions that Fine Gael were for big farmers and the professional class, and Fianna Fáil were for the smaller person. Uh, I remember canvassing in early elections, and if you knocked on the house of a construction worker, the instant response would be, oh, Fianna Fáil are great for the construction. We definitely give you the vote. I think it was Sean Lamas claimed or made the suggestion that Fianna Fáil was the real Labour Party. I think Fianna Fáil were very left to centre, still are. Um, they got huge support from the trade union movement. Uh, in my days in government post-1997, when we were involved in negotiating um, agreements with the trade unions, I was amazed at the number of trade union activists that would have confided in me that they really were Fianna Fáil. Um, that was an eye-opener for me. And I know my husband, who was representing IBEC, often said to me the thing that surprised him was just the strength uh, that Fianna Fáil had among trade unionists, even though the perception was, and indeed many of them paid a levy to the Labour Party, in reality, they were Fianna Fáil. And what was the Fianna Fáil? What was their secret sauce in achieving that? I think organisation structure, uh, a bit like the GEA. They were organised everywhere. When I was young, we had very large numbers of members of our organisation out in West Dublin and subsequently in other parts of the city where I, as the constituency moved. And that changed over the years. When I started in politics first to be canvassed by day, there was always somebody in the house, um, women generally, who no, weren't in the workforce. So you canvassed during the day. In my latter years in politics, you never canvassed by day because there just wasn't anybody there. So I think the secret, Fianna Fáil's secret was organisation on the one hand, and they seemed to be able to talk to people and communicate with people in a meaningful way, in a way that maybe Fine Gael didn't. But part of it was perception. Fine Gael was perceived to be uh, for the, the better off. Uh, I'm, I'm not certain it was fair, but that was the reality. And I think Gareth Fitzgerald, as leader of Fine Gael, changed that perception. And w was your own family, were you kind of died in the wool Fianna Fáil, were your parents? My father um, was Fianna, a Fianna Fáil activist. His father was Fianna Fáil, but his mother came from a strong Fine Gael family. And I think that probably led to some of my healthier views on politics that mix within the family. On my mother's side, um, they were mainly Fianna Fáil, but again, there was a, a, a tinkling of Fine Gael in that background too. So you could say I came from a mixed background, which was very unusual. Um, although my father was an activist, his real interest was in agriculture, and his perception certainly was uh, that Fianna Fáil were better for the smaller farmer. You were saying a few minutes ago that uh, there was a consensus on Northern Ireland that emerged, uh, which led to the Good Friday Agreement. But could it not be suggested or argued that there was a consensus as well in the early 70s um, that 
you know, there could only be uh, Irish unity by uh, peaceful means. Uh, there was a kind of a confluence of, of, of outlook between uh, Jack Lynch, maybe in, initially in government, but then in opposition, the SDLP, the Cosgrove government that achieved the Sunningdale Agreement. Yes, but the reality, that was, they were the words, but that wasn't the reality. For example, we were in government as a, a, a junior partner between 1989 and 1992. Des O'Malley nominated me to represent the Progressive Democrats in the talks, and Albert Reynolds vetoed it on the basis that I was uh, too, too supportive of the unionist position. Um, so whilst the words were one thing, the reality was very different, and I don't think there were the kind of linkages with the unionist community that subsequently emerged, and certainly that Bertie Ahern put a huge effort uh, into developing and maintaining. Jack Lynch was somebody who fostered and encouraged a political career. Tell me about that and about him. Well, I went to Trinity in 1972. I got involved in the debating society there, and through that I met a lot of politicians, including Jack Lynch. I became very fond of him. I was a great admirer of his. I liked the fact that he was such a modest man, notwithstanding his high office. Um, I got to know him in a different way when I uh, became a senator and subsequently a TD. Became very friendly with him, enjoyed his company. He was a, a very ordinary person, actually. A most unlikely leader, I would say. He, he was very encouraging of people like me and of younger people. He was quite liberal in his views, even though Fianna Fáil then was a very conservative party. Uh, that did surprise me. He was more liberal in his private views than perhaps he ever expressed in public. What was life like for you after 1979 when Jack Lynch retired, resigned the party leadership and was succeeded as leader in Taoiseach by Charles Hoy? It was almost like being in a different party, quite honestly. Uh, clearly a lot of the, the main personalities that came to the fore were very different. Um, many of them were people elected in 1977. Uh, Fianna Fáil adopted a much more rural approach in the type of people that became more prominent in the party and you'd, I felt very unwelcome uh, and certainly people like me felt very alienated because we weren't included notwithstanding the efforts of some to say the party is very divided, the vote was close for the leadership uh, in the appointments, the Taoiseach should bear that in mind uh, but whilst that was acknowledged in words it never happened in reality and certainly for me it was a very unhappy place in the early 80s and they, there was a referendum on what was called the pro-life referendum. Um, I was very unhappy with the position we adopted uh, and subsequently on other social issues. And I remember making up my mind sometime in 1985, uh, the next issue that arose that I dis where I disagreed with the stance being taken, I was going to take the opportunity to vote, I suppose you could say in accordance with my conscience rather than vote for my career. And it happened to be the Anglo-Irish Agreement. Many years though before that, uh, when Mr. Ahohi was leader initially in Taoiseach, his supporters would say that he was, his, his, his victory democratically achieved for the party leadership was never really accepted by people like yourself, George Colley, Des O'Malley, Bobby Malloy. I think that's probably a fair comment. Um, it was democratically achieved. I wasn't surprised he got elected actually, because as a young senator, he gave great attention uh, to all the newly elected people. In fact, on one occasion, as Minister for Health, he even had somebody like me running around Marion Square at lunchtime. He had a, a sort of a health promotion campaign was an operation. And I remember the free toothbrushes and all of that. So he made a big effort to be inclusive, to get to know people, to be concerned, uh, even members of the Shannon who didn't have a vote in the leadership. But quite honestly, after his election, you didn't feel welcome in the party if you hadn't supported him. That was the reality. And whilst others had issues to do with the arms trial, I wasn't around for the arms trial. Uh, and maybe to some extent, many people like me ended up fighting battles that were based on the arms trial. Um, I think it was hard for some people to accept, given the background to how he became back, uh, back into the front bench as uh, a member of the government post the 77 election when Jack Lynch was trying to extend the hand of friendship and heal the party and make sure there were no divisions insofar as he could, uh, people felt that that wasn't reciprocated. Uh, but some of those battles went back uh, maybe to school days. In the case of George Colley and Charlie Hawhey, there was a lot of rivalry between them. And maybe people like me got involved in those battles when we shouldn't have. Is that something that you have maybe in retirement uh, come to, to see as a new perspective? Or did you think maybe, you know, when you were in active politics that you, you, you got involved where you shouldn't have? It's more of a mature reflection to quote the famous words of, of the late Brian Lenham. Um, I think when you're very young, uh, you're, you're kind of very idealistic and you tend to, uh, I suppose, pin your colours. Uh, 
to the mask of somebody and maybe you're not as objective as you should be and probably I was one of those people. Now, I wouldn't have voted for Mr. Hoy. Uh, I would have voted for George Colley if I had a vote. Um, but I didn't have a vote. But certainly, um, I think maybe there was a, a bias in people like me that was perhaps a bit unfair. And subsequently, you know, I had a good working relationship with Mr. Hawhey when we ended up in government together. One of the great what-ifs, I suppose, uh, Desamali was thrown out of the party uh, because he abstained on family planning legislation. You were expelled, I think, uh, from the Parliamentary Party over the Anglo-Irish Agreement. What if, what if you had both stayed, swallowed your pride and done and towed the party line? Arguably, he would have ended up as a Fianna Fáil Taoiseach and you would have ended up as a Fianna Fáil Tánaiste or even first woman Taoiseach. I'm not certain Des O'Malley would ever have ended up as the leader of Fianna Fáil, quite honestly. I think, you know, we've often discussed, he and I often discussed that. Um, I'm not certain it would have happened. For me, I'd become very unhappy because the party was very conservative and remained very conservative um, right into the early 90s and beyond. In fact, Micheál Martin has probably been the person that has helped to bring the party forward on the Liberal agenda more than anybody else. Uh, certainly, I've been very impressed with the manner in which he's handled the about the marriage equality referendum and the referendum in relation to abortion. Uh, a Fianna Fáil leader in the past uh, would not have shown the courage, I think, that he showed. So maybe there's a maturing over the years, but certainly for me, it was a deeply conservative party. I had become unhappy. And, and the only hope I saw of a resurrection for the party, in my view, was if Des O'Malley became the leader. But I'm not certain, you know, we've often reflected on that. Uh, because the party got many opportunities during those various votes of no confidence to support somebody like Des O'Malley and to choose not to. How difficult was it then for you? I mean, clearly you had a plan that you were going to vote on the first issue that arose, which was the Anglo-Irish Agreement, to go from that, from being expelled, to actually founding a new party. Well, I had spent two months in the United States during the summer of 85. I was there courtesy of the State Department. and I had made up my mind the next issue. I wasn't aware at that point that it would be the Anglo-Irish Agreement. But prior to going to the United States, I had tried to convince Des O'Malley to start a new party and a number of us met, six or seven of us, and there seemed to be great enthusiasm. When I got back from the United States in September, all that enthusiasm had gone and he was on his own. And uh, I saw a great opportunity um, for something new in Irish politics, something that wasn't from the Civil War, that wasn't Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. Um, and I felt he had the credibility to lead such an organisation. So it was, it was a challenge, it was exhilarating, it was difficult. Uh, it had all the hallmarks of starting a small business and not really know, know, knowing where you were going. And I remember one of the early days of, our, of the Progressive Democrats in early 1986, we were travelling out to a meeting in Sutton and there was a huge traffic jam. And I said to him, I wonder what the problem is. And he said, I don't know. And little did we know that everybody was going to the meeting in Sutton and the hotel couldn't even accommodate the crowds that came. Many of them had to be outside. So we were very overwhelmed at the level of, of support and the enthusiasm. Um, and certainly, even though most of us came from a Fianna Fáil background, the majority of the support came from Fine Gael. Who were the encouragers who fell by the wayside between you going and returning from the States? Well, Seamus Brennan was one, uh, certainly. And I'm not certain I should name other people because they haven't named themselves. Charlie McGreevy was an encourager. Now, he didn't fall by the wayside at that point. Uh, that was subsequently. Um, but was Michael O'Leary, the ex-Labour Thonish, that he was uh, very involved. And there were people who weren't elected persons uh, who were very involved. But as we got closer to D-Day, as it were, um, people fell away for all kinds of reasons that I can understand to do with family. I mean, one of the, the, the big issues that confronted me when I was leaving Fianna Fáil was how would I tell my father? For example, I was asked this at a conference recently, you know, what, what was one of the big decisions in your life that really worried you? And I said, going to tell my father I was leaving Fianna Fáil. And, you know, for many people, they have family ties, uh, they have connections, and breaking those connections is not easy. How did you tell him and how did he react? Well, I tried to tell him about five times. Um, I sort of sat down and said, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And then suddenly I just lost the nerve. So it took me about five attempts and I just came out straight and said it to him. Um, he reacted uh, in a way that was unexpected from my point of view, but when I think back on it, parents always support their children. Even when you have difficult things that you don't want to really worry them about, when you do tell them, 
uh, they're very supportive. And he was very supportive. In fact, ironically, my mother ended up more shocked than my father did. Now, however, many of my relatives from the Fianna Fáil stable um, considered me uh, somebody that had almost changed their religion. They were very, very shocked and I think disappointed, actually. People in Fianna Fáil of the Parliamentary Party at the time probably weren't overly surprised that you would go with Des O'Malley. But when Bobby Malloy went in early 1986, that was a massive shock. Yes, and I was actually surprised myself that he came uh, because Bobby was a very conservative person. He was deeply rooted in Fianna Fáil. Um, but I think he reflected over Christmas. I think many of his uh, strongest supporters were very encouraging and his family. And I don't think he ever regretted it. In fact, I know he didn't because he and I discussed it many years after uh, the event, even when the Progressive Democrats weren't doing as well as we had in the earlier days. I think he too had become unhappy and he saw it as a great opportunity. And, uh, you know, he, he was somebody that I think um, Fianna Fáil took, took his departure much more seriously than mine or Des O'Malley's. I think that really mattered to them. And I understand when they became aware uh, of his resignation because what he did was he wrote it out, he left it in a file in his office and then he told his secretary, there's a letter in the second drawer in the third file, can you please bring it up to the to uh, Mr. Hawhey? And uh, I think they were very, very shocked and I think worried that this was going to be the beginning of uh, a big exodus. It wasn't, of course, but uh, I think they were worried it would be. And then you had the election in 1987, 14 seats, as you say, you got a lot of Fine Gael votes and then... You found yourselves in government with Mr. Hawhey after the 1989 election. You had done badly at lost seats, but the numbers fell a certain way. Yes. And of course, as I said to somebody recently, mathematics does play a part in some of the equations that happen after elections. Many people were surprised about that. How, I remember being asked, how could you go into government with Mr. Hawhey? But we were there as an independent party. We weren't part of Fianna Fáil. We were able to agree a programme for government. I remember doing an interview for RT from the count on, on Saturday during that election count uh, and saying that I think we should talk to Fianna Fáil about a coalition. And my colleagues in the Progressive Democrats, including Des O'Malley, weren't very happy with me. The interview was with Cahill McKilla. And uh, I understand Mr. Hawley heard the interview and he phoned a few people and said, well, she's serious. And he then sent Charlie McCreevy to talk to me and uh, the rest is history. But I, I saw it as an opportunity for us to have influence on policy. Um, we had the crucial numbers, and that was a very stable and good government, actually. At the same time as he was sending Charlie McGreevy to talk to you, he was sending senior figure after senior figure out onto the plinth saying, Fianna Fáil only believes and only our core value is single-party government, no coalition. Well, does that surprise you? Um, too often politicians speak out of both sides of their mouth. I think that was probably a way of trying to test the mood in the party. Uh, and trying to keep a handle on things until he was certain he had it in the bag, as it were. Um, but there was no doubt in my mind um, after that Sunday interview when I got so many calls, um, Charlie, I remember Charlie McGreevy saying, can I come and see you now? And I said, no, not today, maybe tomorrow, because we'd been partying the night before and it certainly wasn't a, a day to be discussing the possible formation of a government. But I was in no doubt um, with the message that Charlie McGreevy got that they were serious about wanting uh, to form a coalition. And I remember on uh, one occasion, uh, Charlie Hawhey did say very pleasant things about uh, how that government was working in a conversation I had with him. The negotiations at a party-to-party -party level were conducted, I think, on your side by Bobby Malloy and Pat Cox, by Albert Reynolds and Bertie Ahern on the other side. But separate from that, we've heard from Owen O'Malley, Des's son, that actually Des O'Malley and Charles Hawhey, before those uh, engagements or negotiations started, they had been tic-tacking well in advance. That's right. Um, I think they had several conversations. Um, I suppose uh, I understand that they were initiated by Charlie Hawhey, although I'm not certain about that, but that was my, that's my understanding and that's my memory. Um, I think he wanted to make sure it was possible before they started announcing the formality of negotiations and then maybe having egg in his face because Des O'Malley wasn't up for it. Had Hawhey conceded the principle of coalition seats at Cabinet for the PDs at that early stage? Yes. Uh, because that was one of the things that Des O'Malley wanted to make clear, that it wasn't a question of a Tala-type strategy of supporting from the outside, uh, that in order to give effect to that programme for government that you had to be in the government. So that was set that was set out early, but he kept those cards very close to his chest, how he did. I can understand it because it was a big step for Fianna Fáil, a very big step for Fianna Fáil. And, you know, at first hand, I used to see that when I was 
um, Porrick Flynn's junior minister. I mean, he never really accepted it. I think it, it took Fianna Fáil more than that government to accept the concept of coalition. I think for many, they thought it was an exception and never happened again. Uh, and therefore they were quite, uh, I suppose, removed from it or distant from it or tried to be distant from it as much as possible. But certainly it was a big step for Fianna Fáil to go into a coalition government because when I grew up as a Fianna Fáil senator and candidate, even in the local elections, it was always one Fianna Fáil, two Fianna Fáil, three Fianna Fáil and stop. Don't even give a transfer to anybody else. And Bertie, I think, was the, was the person that made Fianna Fáil transfer friendly. But coming back to the Progressive Democrats, I mean, you basically had left Fianna Fáil, uh, insofar as you were Fianna Fáilers, because of Hawhey, because of the line uh, that his party was taking, the way he ran it, the people who were surrounding him. You must have had serious doubts. I mean, whatever about the arithmetic, how could we possibly do this? But politics is about reaching agreement on policies and having an opportunity to implement them. It's not actually about personalities. Uh, for me, leaving Fianna Fáil was about leaving a, a Conservative Party. Being a member of the Progressive Democrats, being able to negotiate a programme for government that you agreed with. Um, there was strong emphasis on changing industrial policy, taxation, a moderate approach in Northern Ireland, for example, uh, because we had very good uh, contacts in Northern Ireland. We were probably uh, more moderate in our approach than the typical Fianna Fáiler. And we were very keen to see a different approach espoused by that government. And in fact, that was the case until the, the leadership of the government changed with the election of Albert Reynolds. Yes, but by then, Charles Howey had been working the Anglo-Irish Agreement as part of his minority government from 87 to 89. That's correct. But I mean, the Anglo-Irish Agreement was a framework for, bring, for later leading to what happened in the Good Friday Agreement. It in itself wasn't a settlement for Northern Ireland. It was, a, a, I suppose, it was part of the roadmap to where we we got to with the Good Friday Agreement. What was your working relationship, or was there a working relationship between yourself and Pollock Flynn? No. Um, I remember when I, I was keen to go to the Department of the Environment and a big interest in environmental issues, and I saw it as an opportunity. And the first thing that happened was I was given an office in the dungeon, and that didn't actually worry me because I was more concerned about what I could do, and then I had to go in a different door, not the ministerial door. And the irony is that Terry Prone, who was the, the, the Minister's communication, advisors, who's a good friend of mine, actually. She had an office beside the minister, but I had one in the dungeon. And the, the process of government works as follows, that if you're a junior minister and you want to bring a memorandum to the government, it goes to the senior minister. And I remember when we were proposing the ban on bituminous coal uh, for the Dublin area, it was sitting on Porrick Flynn's desk for weeks. And I was getting extremely frustrated that we couldn't get a decision from the government. And it took days before I realised that actually the memorandum had never gone to the government. And I went to see Mr. Hawhey and he was extremely supportive. In fact, that would never have happened without his support. And uh, he faced down his minister because uh, Pauli Flynn was not keen on, on uh, doing a ban on bituminous coal because there had been an agreement made with the what was called the coal industry or the coal lobby um, in the previous year. The Progressive Democrats at times, at times of conflict and crisis, extracted a very high price from Fianna Fáil to keep that government in office like, for instance, effectively vetoing Jim McDade's appointment as Minister for Defence uh, and then insisting that Brian Lenahan be sacked in the middle of the presidential election campaign. Yes. I think perhaps in those days we were probably too personality-focused. Um, the issue around Brian, Brian Lenahan was part of the... I mean, we, we had no disagreement with Brian Lenahan. In fact, I think many of the party were supporting Brian Lenahan's candidacy. But the, the issues that arose during the campaign made his election very difficult. And it was a very difficult decision for us uh, to do what we did. But it, Brian got tied up in such a controversy that it became virtually impossible for him uh, to win that election. And you effectively forced Mr. Hawhey to, to fire his, his close friend, one of the three musketeers himself, Lenahan, and, and the late Donna O'Malley, Des O'Malley's uncle. Um, PJ Mara, in another programme, in another series about, about Charles, how he said the progressive Democrats should have been told to F off at that time. Well, that's what happened when Albert Reynolds came and you know what the consequences of that were. The reality is when you're in a coalition government, you uh, have an influence beyond your numbers. Um, many would say the Green Party have such an influence on the current government. Uh, and that, that is the way it is. Um, and if you're a smaller party, 
you do have to punch above your weight. But I think reflecting back on those years, perhaps we were over emphasizing the personality at the expense of the issue. And that's the way politics often moved. And thankfully, in more recent years, we haven't had those experiences. Does that mean that, in hindsight, you really feel you shouldn't have made, made, made Hawhey fire Lenahan? Well, in hindsight, you don't feel good about these things. Same thing with Jim McDade? Yes, although the issues there were somewhat different. The government between the, the working arrangement clearly was cordial, it was efficient, it was effective between Des O'Malley and Charles Hawhey. But then Charles Hawhey was deposed. Albert Reynolds became Taoiseach. How much of a change was that? A huge change, because um, Albert was playing to the group in Fianna Fáil who didn't agree with coalition. I think he genuinely thought he could get an overall majority um, if he got this monkey off his back. And he was going to take nothing from, um, nothing from this small band of people uh, who shouldn't have the influence they had. And the issue that, of course, confronted that government very early on was the, the question of the beef tribunal and, you know, there was the, the exit of the Progressive Democrats from, from that government was inevitable and that was not a mistake. I would have no hesitation in saying, even looking back on that now, you could not stay in a government where uh, the leader of that government accused the, one of his ministers of not telling the truth. And I think prior to that, Des O'Malley had described Albert Reynolds' behaviour as reckless when he was giving out the export credit insurance, um, and which, of course, led to, to, to big losses uh, for the state. That's correct. Well, almost all of the credit, export credit insurance went to one operator, and much of that credit insurance went to for beef that wasn't produced in Ireland, and clearly that was reckless. And what did you make of, uh, for instance, Brian Cowan at Anordesh uh, talking about, you know, referring to the Progressive Democrats in terms of when in doubt, leave them out. Well, in those days, Brian was playing to the same gallery. He and I often had a laugh about that um, because we've become good friends. We came, became good friends in government in 1997 and onwards, and particularly when he became Taoiseach. Uh, and I've often teased him about that. Um, but again, he was playing to the grassroots in Fianna Fáil who really wanted single-party government, didn't want these people that had an inordinate influence as they saw it. Uh, they were former members of ours and they've let us down, they've betrayed the party. Uh, so at Ardeshna, people like Brian uh, Cowan, who could be quite tribal, I think he would acknowledge that himself. He's certainly of the Fianna Fáil stable and there's no question of him being anything else. He was playing to the, the gallery, I suppose, at the Ardeshna. And people do say things in the context of speeches at an Ardeshna that maybe on reflection they mightn't actually well, say was it, it Was it headed for the rocks, that arrangement, pretty much from the off? When Albert Rands became Taoiseach, yes. I think it was only a question of time. Um, because there were other issues, there were issues brought to the government where Des O'Malley as the Minister for Industry and Commerce wasn't even consulted, even though they were part of, it was part of his... Uh, Can you remember what they might have been? It was to do with setting up county enterprise boards, um, which was obviously an enterprise initiative. And I know he knew nothing about a memorandum that was produced and brought before the government at the time. Uh, and little things of that kind where he should have been consulted and suddenly you'd arrive into a cabinet meeting and realise that something was up for decision that you weren't aware of. So even without the Beef Tribunal, you can't function in a government that, where you're treated like that. So you had that experience of government and then that government came apart. Albert Reynolds, rather than winning an overall majority, the party lost seats, but he found himself in government with uh, Dick Spring, a Fianna Fáil Labour coalition. Um, so you were in the you were, you were out in the cold politically, or at least in terms of power, for what another um, four or five years. Yes, from ninety two to ninety seven. Um, and w w did you always regard it as inevitable that you would be back in government with Bertie Ahern? I mean, how do, how was the tick tacking done there? Because I think you became Progressive Democrat leader during that period. That's correct. Uh, there were very good relationships between with, with Fianna Fáil, and certainly when Bertie Ahern became leader, he. Um, he and I used to meet from time to time. Uh, I remember being out in Drumcondor meeting for lunch discussing general political issues. Uh, so friendships developed and relationships developed and in all walks of life, but particularly in politics, networking and relationships are very important. Um, when you have good relationships, you can make things happen. And I certainly saw that at first hand in the effort Bertie O'Hearn made to extend the hand of friendship to all sides of Northern Ireland and to build good relationships and it certainly helped to deliver uh, the, the Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement in 1997. 
1998, sorry. Um, but we developed good relationships, a number of us, uh, with, with key people in Fianna Fáil. So I suppose it became inevitable when the, the numbers stacked up, uh, although we did need the support of independence, that we would set about forming a government. And what do you say to the suggestion that the economic policy, the, the financial policy of that particular government, particularly in the early part of it, when Charlie McCreevy was Minister for Finance, it effectively was driven by the progressive Democrats and that Charlie McCreevy was a, a effectively, you know, a fifth columnist of the PDs in government. Well, in terms of policy, I think Charlie would be a closet uh, PD, if you don't understand me, in terms of economic policy. He and I would have a similar perspective. Um, Pro-enterprise, lower tax on working people, that's how you you uh, make things happen. Um, we were the government that took the lower paid out of the tax net altogether. We were also the government, I was the minister, that introduced the minimum wage. Uh, we reduced um, uh, corporation capital gains tax on people selling their business to 25%. And the, the return on that, instead of there being a cost, it actually generated revenue. And these are the kind of levers you need in the modern economy to make things happen. They don't exist today, and, and there's nobody advocating them, and I think there's a vacuum in Irish politics, actually. You coined this phrase, Boston or Berlin. We're more aligned in our approach to Boston than we are to Berlin. Remind us, what did you mean by that? Well, that, that, was, the, that was one of the most misunderstood speeches I've ever made. Um, what I, well, I said geographically we were obviously closer to Berlin, but in many ways we were closer to Boston in terms of philosophy and ideology. What do I mean? We are close to America. Um, the revenue base of this state is very dependent on the inward investment we get from the United States. Irish companies um, do more business in the United States than almost anywhere else. And in fact, there is as many people working for Irish companies in the US as there are working for American companies here. So we, very, we are very linked in, but that was perceived to be that I, I was perceived to be a non-European and pro-American. I'm not. I'm a proud European, a proud Irish woman. I'm a proud European. But I have great respect for the United States and for the, the country of opportunity. Yes, but there was also the fact, though, that, you know, in contrast to Fianna Fáil, and you mentioned how they were a left-wing party, a left-of-centre party, but Charlie McCreevy and the PDs were pursuing these uh, low-tax policies and throwing light-touch regulation as well. But it's and not true. The, the, this light-touch regulation is incorrect. As Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, I set up the Office for Director of Corporate Enforcement. We greatly strengthened company law. When I went into that department, there was one person in charge of company law. That's a fact. One, one official and a part-time official. We effectively had nobody overseeing the enforcement of company law. Where the country fell down in relation to regulation was not the lack of regulation, but the enforcement of the regulation by the regulators. Uh, and that is a fact. And, you know, I see now that there's you know, penalties being imposed on, on different entities in this state. And I welcome that because entities need to pay a price for the failure of corporate governance. In saying that, is it your view that people whose job it was to, import, to enforce their regulation or the systems that you put in place didn't do their job, but ultimately it was your job to make sure they did theirs? Well, they're all independent uh, bodies. This is the, this is the issue. Uh, when you appoint when you um, appoint an independent entity, whether it's in health, like the medical council, or the uh, other professional regulatory bodies in the health area, or whether it's in the economic area, such as the central bank or the director of corporate enforcement, they operate completely independently. You have no um, influence over them, whatever. Were we aware at the time that the regulation wasn't being uh, implemented? No, of course we weren't. I don't think anybody was. And the perception in the country and the reality, in fact, of in terms of the the views expressed by many economists uh, in the in that period in the run into the 2007 election was we were going to have a very soft landing did we know for example that the banks were lending money on land that wouldn't be developed for maybe the next 100 years i understand in one of the big towns in kildare uh, banks lent money on land in or around the nace newbridge area that even in 100 years won't be needed for development how can that happen uh, why did that happen? I mean, it's extraordinary. But at a political level, the government, and there's no escaping the responsibility uh, of politicians for this, was was committing to spending based on revenue that couldn't be relied on into the future, based on uh, taxes associated with construction. Yes. And then when that crashed, we had no money. When that crashed, we had to obviously make serious cuts. That's correct. But there was no, uh, the manifestos produced for the 2007 election, whether by Fine Gael, who were the opposition party, or Labour, or the government parties, 
didn't differ very much from the analysis of the, the economic analysis at the time. And it wasn't that we were fooling ourselves. We were most of the independent analysis at that time, with one or two exceptions, I, except there were outliers, with one, or, with one or two exceptions, was saying we'll have a soft landing, et cetera, et cetera. And people based their economic approach on that. And clearly, the, when the alarm bells rang in 2008, 2009, Obviously, the measures we had to take were incredibly difficult. Had there not been quiet warnings, though, from people of experience, like, for instance, Ray McSharry, this is not a wise course to be pursuing? I'm not aware of any warning from Ray McSharry in relation to that. I mean, there, there will always be individuals. Uh, it's happening at the moment. Uh, there will always be individuals who will take issue uh, with policy approaches. But if you're asking me, should, have we, should we have drawn in the horns earlier? Maybe we should. But certainly it was an honest attempt to follow the advice, both the official advice the government was receiving internally and the external advice that all the parties were receiving. And that's why no party at the time, including Fine Gael, who were the main opposition party at the time, felt that there was any need to take a different economic approach. So is it the case that really nobody is to blame for what happened, the no, calamity not, that, that I, I, befell not, this country? I'm not saying nobody is to blame. and People have paid a very heavy price for what happened, including... Uh, members of the, the government between 2007 and 2011. Many of them lost their seats. Um, you don't need me to tell you what happened to the Fianna Fáil party, which was the main party in government at the time. So a, a heavy price was paid. And clearly when things go wrong uh, in any society, in any democratic society, people do tend to take it out on the political system. That's not wrong. But when I, in terms of the question you asked me initially on regulation, I feel very strongly that it wasn't a deficiency in regulation. I'm not saying regulation was perfect, but it was certainly no light-touch regulation. Uh, I, I, I believe in uh, regulated markets. I don't believe in markets that aren't regulated, uh, because if, 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 if otherwise, in, in fact, the, the Beef Tribunal, the heart of that was about competition and whether or not it was fair play. So you need to have appropriate regulation and competition policies. But the economic policies uh, that were being pursued were, were honestly pursued, but clearly mistakes were made, yes. And you talked earlier about uh, how when you would go canvassing as a younger politician, that uh, people who would be working in the construction industry would say, oh yeah, we're voting Fianna Fáil. I That's mean, right. I mean, doesn't that tell us something about Fianna Fáil being maybe too close to the construction industry? Um, perhaps that's the case, but uh, I, I think many of the bigger construction companies in the country have other political alliances too, and, cl and clearly one of them got elected to the Dáil, he's certainly not of the Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael stable. Uh, but there's no doubt that was the perception of people when I canvassed in my early days, people from construction. It was a time when there weren't many opportunities in Ireland. You either worked as a teacher, a nurse, a guard, uh, or you worked in construction. Uh, certainly, the, when I left university, the jobs that exist today were never even heard of. So people were very dependent on construction, and that was the, the perception. And maybe it was the reality, because many of the economic expansion plans were, head, were headed by Fianna Fáil governments. What was the, or when was the moment, and I think you famously said to John Gormley that your worst day in government is better than your best day in opposition, but there must have been some horrendous days in government, particularly from 2008 onwards. Yes. What was the worst? Oh, well, obviously the worst was around the time the IMF came in and the run into that. Um, uh, but all of those days were bad because we used to have very late night meetings. Um, people were very tired. Uh, and, you know, that, that was part of what I remember. There were endless meetings. Um, it was the first time the Greens were in government and clearly it was very difficult for them. And they're, uh, like any party, particularly a small party, your members get very nervous um, when you have to take tough decisions that they never anticipated. Uh, and certainly when I was said that to John Gormley, I mean, I think John had many moments when he, he felt he shouldn't be there. But I, 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 do, I did remind him that being there and being able to do things is better than just talking about it as if you were in a, a debating chamber. But there were, there were so many difficult uh, decisions that we had to make. And it was one thing after the next. I can't say there was any one thing that was worse than the other, but certainly preparing for the budgets that we had to implement. There was the night as well that the government decided to give the unlimited bank guarantee, which ended up costing the state many billions of, of euros, something in the order of 50. Um, again, looking back on that, do you think there might have been another way? No, I don't. And I've never thought there was another way. And, and I think at the time, the main opposition party did support it. I know Joan Burton raised issues about it. But the consequences for this country, if we hadn't, would have been 
more severe than what happened. For example, I remember on the around those days where people trying to collect their money out of deposit accounts and I think one of your former colleagues in RT on his Liveline show was getting several calls, people worried about their money. It was a really bad time. Uh, if you have a run in the banks, I think that would have been much more severe than, than uh, the guarantee. And I don't think we had, as a small country, I don't think we had many options there and certainly uh, notwithstanding the fact that it wasn't popular, clearly, because what the majority of people would love to say is let the big guys sail off into the, the sunset. But the reality is you need the big guys the relationship in any government between Taoiseach and Minister of Finance is obviously very important. What would your observations be on the relationship at that critical stage between Brian Cowan and uh, Brian Lenahan? Well, they were very good friends and I think initially the relationship was very good, but it did become a bit strained. Um, I don't know why that was the case, but it did become strained. That became evident to me, certainly, sitting around the cabinet table. Um, I'm not sure why it happened, whether whether Brian Cowan became unhappy with some of the initiatives that were being proposed, I just don't know. I, I never got behind that, it wasn't my business, but certainly I, d I do think the, the uh, relationship from time to time did become a bit frayed. Might it have been because Brian Lennon was pushing as Minister for Finance for tougher measures than the Taoiseach maybe felt uh, the country was ready for politically? Possibly, and I think uh, it wasn't just the Taoiseach, I think there were many other members around the cabinet table that put Brian Lennon through his paces when he was making suggestions. And he certainly got my support for all of them uh, and the support of, of his colleagues. But I think people were very questioning, do we really have to do this? We'd come from a time when there was lots of money um, available for spending programmes. And now we're in a situation where we were pulling back on the things that we had initiated. And many people found that very hard. And particularly as Minister for Health, it was very challenging. But equally for ministers in education, Minister of Social Welfare, it was it was very troubling. And I think people just wondered, what, did we really have to do this? And sometimes in debate around the cabinet table, uh, the situation can become a bit difficult and maybe people can form perceptions of challenges. But I, I had no sense that Brian Cowan wasn't supporting the Minister of Finance. Uh, but certainly there were times when you felt that perhaps they didn't have the discussions offline that they should have had. Was Brian Cowan, to some extent, a reluctant Taoiseach? I think so. I think he was. He's basically a shy person. I believe Brian Cowan won the election uh, for Fianna Fáil in 2007. His performance uh, in the media was extraordinary. And he, he put huge energy into that campaign. And everybody would have acknowledged that he played a central role in Fianna Fáil being re-elected. But I think when he became Taoiseach um, initially, I think he was very happy in the role. But once the difficulties confronted the country, I think he would have preferred to have been in a different place. And it's not that he doesn't have the guts or the courage um, to initiate and, and to support difficult decisions. Uh, it is that I think he was quite surprised at how things turned so quickly. Might it have been a mistake, or was it a mistake, uh, again in hindsight, for Bertie Hearn effectively to anoint him as his successor? And he was then elected, or he, became, he, he, he was chosen unanimously as the next leader? Well, that was, I presume Bertie felt he owed him a great deal of gratitude for the performance in the 2007 election. But I know many of his colleagues in Fianna Fáil felt bad about that. And clearly, if you had your eyes on becoming the leader, you wouldn't want your predecessor to anoint somebody. But, you know, that was a Fianna Fáil matter. It wasn't a matter for me. I think Bertie Ahern genuinely felt he was the best person for the job at that time. And it's acknowledged widely that Brian Cowan did get Fianna Fáil over the line in terms of getting back into government uh, with some barnstorming performances on radio and television. Um, at a time when Bertie Hearn was, if you like, m massively distracted by the tribunals and by those financial, personal financial issues. Yes, I, I'm, not, I'm not so certain he was distracted by them, but they seem to go on forever. Um, that's one of the, I suppose, the lessons we must learn about tribunals. You set them up to deal with an issue and years later they're still uh, in, in, in process and that tribunals seemed to go on for an awful long time. So it was a distraction for him. Whether it was a particular distraction in the context of the election, it became a big election issue for him and everywhere he went, the media were questioning about bits of evidence he gave to that tribunal. Did you ever feel inclined to say to him, look, Bertie, this thing has become such a distraction for the government, you ought to consider your position? No, I never said that to him. And it wasn't my business to say that to him. He was the leader of Fianna Fáil. It was a matter for them. It, it, 
I don't think it became a distraction for the government while I was leader of the party. Uh, when Michael McDool uh, became the leader of the party and in the run into that election, it did become a distraction and it actually became a distraction for us as well. We were having many meetings about it too. Um, and it's the point I made earlier to you, Sean, that when a personality issue tends to dominate, it can have a destabilizing effect on everybody. But certainly I never had that conversation with Bertie Hearn. I had a very good relationship with him. Um, he made that government work. He was very easy to work with. Now we had issues from time to time. Uh, but generally speaking, I think he, he went out of his way to make the government work. That government that took office in 07, initially led by Bertie Hearn, then uh, by Brian Cowan, it really ended in utter chaos, didn't it? It did. Because uh, when Brian Cowan tried to change the membership of the government, uh, when the Greens had announced they were leaving the government and, you know, uh, it, it, clearly, when, when your government is about to fall apart, I don't think you have the authority to come to the Dáil and appoint a whole host of new ministers. So he, at the end, that government ended up with very few ministers. I think Mary Co Coughlin was minister for about four departments, including health, because I wasn't going to run the election, and clearly the wish was for people who weren't running in the election to stand down so that the Taoiseach could appoint um, new people. In fact, I remember when he said that to me, that was his wish, I cautioned against it, because I didn't think he could go to the Dáil at that point and appoint new people for, effectively, the duration of the election. How, how do you think you performed yourself in government in your various ministries? Initially, I think it was trade uh, was your main, and, and commerce, and then you volunteered to take on the Department of Health. Well, my initial experience, obviously, was in the Department of the Environment. Um, and, I, I, you know, we did a few things. As, as a junior minister, you can't do a huge amount. We brought in the first recycling initiatives in Ireland, set up the Environmental Protection Agency, because at the time every local authority was trying to regulate complex activity and they didn't have the, the skill set or the wherewithal. And obviously the ban on bituminous coal in Dublin, and that worked very well. And then in trade, we strengthened, you know, we, we took the enforcement of company law out of, out of a government department and out of the direction of the minister at the time. It was a minister would decide whether or not you had an inquiry into a company. It was a completely political decision, which I felt was wrong, and put that into a completely independent office. We brought in the minimum wage, um, we set up the personal injuries assessment uh, board, etc. And then in health, uh, I wanted to go to a, a department that um, meant a lot to people in their everyday life, and health was dominating the cabinet agenda for quite a number of years. I was a member of the cabinet subcommittee. In health, it was a very different experience, obviously. There's, on the one hand, the, the everyday crisis, and then you have to concentrate on the things you can do to improve uh, the situation. So cancer reform was a big thing. We took uh, cancer services from 31 hospitals down to eight and uh, had multidisciplinary teams looking at the cancer diagnosis of every patient, which I think has worked very well. Um, we regulated all the different healthcare professionals, modernised the regulation, brought in lay majorities brought in the fair deal to support people in, in nursing homes and began a lot of the reforms in terms of clinical directorships and hospitals. But reforming health is never ending. Um, and every country in the world is challenged by health. And, you know, many years on, I'm gone 11 years. Uh, James Riley used to, you know, tease me in debating the all about how he could turn it around in a matter of weeks. Um, and some of the issues that I confronted, like trolley weights and accident emergency, are bigger today than they were then. And I suppose the lesson to be learned is um, we're too hospital-focused in Ireland. Uh, we need to have, you know, de-hospitalise a lot of care into the community, into general practice. But the policy at the moment is launch a care, and I wish it well. Uh, I'm not certain it's implementable in its current form because it's not properly costed. But um, I, I, I am a supporter of reform, continuous reform in health. Health is changing very rapidly around the world as, you know, AI, robotics, um, technology is going to have a profound impact on, on healthcare as we go forward. And hopefully Ireland is going to be in a position to embrace that. Let's look finally at the future. Uh, the landscape politically has been absolutely transformed. Uh, even in the 11 years since your departure, um, Fianna Fáil took a massive hit. They seem to be recovering quite healthily and then further setback. Sinn Féin seems to be uh, the, well, is the dominant party, certainly in the polls. Uh, do you think it's inevitable that they will lead the next government? I don't think anything is inevitable and you can never be certain. It's inevitable they're going to be in government. Uh, in, in, in the Republic, whether that's after the next election or subsequently, I think. 
Um, they win, they're winning the support of a lot of young people in particular. Um, but I think the political system um, needs to reflect on where we are now. You started asking me questions about the civil war. It's time that we buried the civil war because the differences that existed between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are no longer real. And if there's anything I reflect on as I look in on politics now, it is that there's probably a, as big a gap in the market now as there was when the Progressive Democrats were formed in 1985. I think there's a lot of people in the centre that wonder, are they being really represented? Um, so I would love to see uh, a realignment. I, I would love to see more emphasis on centre politics rather than on uh, everybody trying to chase each other down, the, down um, to left-wing politics. How might that come about? I mean, through a, a coming together of what were the two big parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil? Yeah, well, they're two medium-sized parties now. I think the first step was coming into government together. Well, maybe Fianna Fáil supporting Fine Gael in as a minority government uh, during the last, after the last election, or the second last election, and now formally in government uh, together. Uh, I think, I'm not saying it's going to happen quickly. I'd like to see it happen. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that would like to see it happen. A merger? Uh, for, yes, I think, given that they have very similar policy approach, I don't think there's a huge distinction between uh, the economic agenda or the social agenda or the agenda on other issues between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. I certainly don't see it. And it's not just because they're in government. I think there has been a, a closeness uh, in terms of the policy approach uh, over the last number of years, and effectively it's personality differences rather than policy differences. And inevitably, that will fray, and I, I, I would, I'd see a, a coming together. Not everybody will want that, and some will go to maybe Sinn Féin, some will go maybe to the Labour Party. Uh, but certainly, if we look across Europe uh, and what's happening, I, I'd hate to see uh, the extremes of left or right emerging in Ireland. And looking at Sinn Féin, and I, I know you keep a close eye on politics uh, as a retired politician. Um, how do you assess Sinn Féin? Well, I think as they get closer to the possibility of being in government, um, they're, they're, they're going to be more realistic in their policy approach. Uh, and certainly, given their economic supporters in the US are probably going to have an influence on some of the economic policies. Um, I know they, they're proposing to, you know, no tax credits if you earn 140,000 and another 3% on income tax and they want a wealth tax and all these things. I'm not certain they'll see the light of day if Sinn Féin uh, lead the next government. I think they will be, uh, there will be a reflection on, on what's doable. And unless they're in a government on their own, which is not going to happen, I don't think, they're going to have to negotiate with either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael to form that government. Uh, and clearly that will determine the outcome of particularly the economic approach.